0: A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback.
1: The Herald, Tuesday the 21st of June, 2022. News. Glasgow's SWG3 reveals transformed derelict site. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Glasgow Arts Venue SWG3 has revealed the first phase in plans to transform a huge stretch of derelict land into a new community garden will be completed this week. Situated behind SWG3's main warehouse building, 3,200 square metres of wasteland has been redesigned in consultation with neighbours resident artists, staff and the wider local community as the SWG3 complex prepares for one of their most significant developments yet a green space. After being registered by the City Council as being derelict for over two decades the land has been remodelled to create a shared space for the community to grow, plant, play and create. The garden's development has been led by horticultural and design expert, Jeremy Needham. The first sign of life has been a significant one. Since the New York Times Climate Hub hosted at the venue during COP26, Mr. Needham has been tending a miniature forest of indigenous plants and trees, donated by the global institution following a powerful installation in SWG3's Galvanizer's Space by artist Ez Devlin. A spacious outdoor terrace stretching out beneath the warehouse windows has also been built featuring a sculpture designed by award-winning Scottish artist Jacqueline Donachy, titled STEP, S-T-E-P, The artwork will be installed on the terrace as modular platforms. Initially created for Glasgow International 2021, it explores the relationship between built environments and the different types of bodies accessing them. With the SWG3 summer programme starting shortly, access times to the garden will be published on the SWG3 website and from next spring, the garden will be open daily, all year round. It is described as a green oasis in the heart of the city and a space where everybody from local residents to tourists and artists with their touring parties can relax, socialise and connect with nature. Andrew Fleming-Brown, Managing Director of SWG3 said, We're delighted to be able to reveal our plans for the garden It's an integral part of our vision in creating a truly world-class, cultural and circular campus as well as an exciting way for SWG3 to become even more involved with our local community. As a project, the garden holds so much potential to collaborate, learn and create and we can't wait to welcome visitors later in the year. Working with Sustainable Food Collective Propagate, SWG3 have held an intensive consultation process. Through surveys, canvassing, workshops and a garden party held in the grounds, an incredible amount of information and ideas have been garnered on everything from bees to biodiversity, what ways to wildfires. As well as addressing a known demand for public green space and growing space in the area, the garden is a key part in SWG3's vision for the future, which includes the site going completely net zero. Across the rest of the year, work will begin on bringing to life the plans for the rest of the space, including bespoke seating, growing and food production beds, a sheltered gathering space, sensory planting area, and a woodland walkway. Funding of more than £500,000 from a combination of funders, including the Vacant and Derelict Land Fund, the UK Government through the UK Community Renewal Fund, and the VKR Foundation have made the garden possible. Richard Williams, Business Development Manager at Velux, said... It's a privilege for Velux to be part of this project, which will provide the local community with much needed green space and somewhere to come together. Myself and 15 colleagues from our regional office are looking forward to getting stuck in and planting some trees and helping this worthy initiative. While John Maguire, International Sales Director at Alta Terra, said it was a project close to his heart and added, I am delighted the foundation could support this tremendous initiative, which will be beneficial both to the people of Glasgow and the local environment. We are all extremely proud that we could play a part in the funding, but also getting our hands dirty in the development of the garden. This article is by Deborah Anderson. The Herald Tuesday the 21st of June 2022 news Mitral valve repair procedure to be rolled out across UK This article is by Caroline Wilson A life-changing procedure for one of the most common heart complaints will now be available in Scotland after a 10-year battle by doctors to seek funded by the NHS Transcatheter edge-to-edge repair, T-E-E-R, is a straightforward solution to a condition that affects hundreds of thousands of people across the UK. Until now, open heart surgery has been the only option available for patients with a leaky mitral valve, which if left untreated can lead to blood clots, stroke and heart failure. The two hour procedure is performed using keyhole surgery in which doctors access the mitral valve with a catheter guided through a vein in the patient's groin. One or more implanted clips are attached to the mitral valve to seal off the leak and restore normal blood flow. The majority of patients are mobile within a day and can leave hospital shortly thereafter. In one case, a patient who had been in intensive care for 11 weeks was discharged from hospital within a week after having the TEER repair. Around 70% of patients find that symptoms, including breathlessness, get better after the procedure and are able to return to everyday activities, such as walking upstairs and going for a stroll. The mitral valve has two leaflets that open and close to allow blood to flow through the heart. If you have been diagnosed with mitral valve regurgitation, it is because your heart's mitral valve is not closing tightly enough, which allows blood to flow in the wrong direction. When blood is not flowing through the heart as it should, it can cause you to feel tired and weak, and in severe cases, may lead to heart failure, arrhythmia, heart rhythm problems, or more serious complications. The problem often develops with age as a result of wear and tear or damage caused by untreated high blood pressure. However, mitral stenosis can present in young patients after bacterial infection of the heart or in elderly patients due to disposition of calcium on the mitral valve. Delays in NHS funding have left the UK lagging behind other European countries in access to TEER, with Germany performing 50 times more procedures. The NHS decided not to fund the treatment in 2011, but heart doctors have been pressing for the decision to be reversed. A two-year evaluation was carried out to prove its effectiveness, but the decision was delayed due to the pandemic. A total of 20 hospitals across the UK will now offer the procedure, including the Golden Jubilee Hospital in Clyde Bank, which is Scotland's National Heart and Lung Centre. Each centre could perform up to 50 procedures every year, which could lead to hundreds of patients benefiting including those who are unable to undergo open-heart surgery. The incidence of heart valve disease increases significantly with age. Degenerative abnormalities associated with severe aortic stenosis and mitral and triscupid regurgitation are found in not less than 10% of the population aged over 75. Surgical treatment has been considered for years to be the treatment of choice. However, it was not uncommonly associated with high perioperative morbidity and mortality due to frequent comorbidities and overall frailty of patients. At least 30% of patients with severe conditions are left untreated due to surgical risk. Professor Dan Blackman, Interventional, Cardiologist at Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust told the telegraph this is a life-changing and life-saving procedure. One of the most dramatic results I have seen was a patient who was in hospital for 11 weeks and was stuck on the intensive care unit critically ill. After we performed TEER he was discharged from hospital in a week. That was a remarkable outcome and highlights just how effective this straightforward procedure can be. This article is by Caroline Wilson.
2: Recorded from the Herald on the 22nd of June 2022. From the Sports Section. Recorded by Amy. Celtic facing transfer battle for Aberdeen's Connor Barron as two Serie A clubs target starlet by Mark Walker. Aberdeen midfielder Connor Barron has emerged as a target for two Serie A clubs as interest hots-up for the Scotland under-21 star. The 19-year-old made a huge impact in a struggling Aberdeen team last season after returning from spending the first half of the season on loan at runaway League 2 winners Kelty Hearts. He only signed a new deal with the Dons in January until 2024, but the Pataudri club are already trying to renegotiate another deal with the talented youngster, with chairman Dave Cormack believed to be particularly keen to tie him down on a long-term contract. But just days after they sold right back Calvin Ramsay to Liverpool for a record fee that could potentially rise up to £8 million, Barron has now attracted serious interest from Italy. Bologna are set to have money to spend with up to 18 million pounds reportedly heading their way with the imminent sale of Scotland defender Aaron Hickey. And they have targeted the Scottish market again because they believe it would be, offer them value for money. They have been joined by ambitious Sassuolo, who finished in the 11th place, two places above Bologna last season. Highly rated manager Alessio Dios- Dionisi has pinpointed Baron as a future prospect. Could improve their club and they've registered interest along with Bologna. Barron, who impressed for Scotland under 21s during the goalless draw in Belgium earlier this month, is a huge part of manager Jim Goodwin's plans for the season and will be handed the number 8 shirt for the new campaign. Aberdeen have a major fight on their hands to keep hold of one of their brightest young starlets. That article was by Mark Walker.
3: From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday, the 22nd of June 2022 from the voices section letters don't blame the workers for the sins of austerity and this is letters taken from the letters page the westminster government has claimed real worker pay demands will worsen inflation but pay rises have been well below the inflation rate so they can't be fueling it instead inflation has been driven by covid related supply chain disruptions the ukraine war western sanctions and the ongoing disaster that is Brexit, causing energy and food prices to soar. Meanwhile, striking rail workers, soon to be followed by teachers and healthcare workers, have systematically had their paying conditions eroded because the UK government undervalues human capital. Years of austerity yielded cuts to public services, driving down wages. Where is the extra money people are shelling out for more costly goods and services going? look no further than the commercial banks and commodity speculators in the energy and food, where profits have soared. The UK government gifted commercial banks £900 billion after the 2008 financial meltdown and during COVID and pays the bank's interest, which could be £50 billion over the next three years, on balances they've done nothing to earn. And the government is profiting from increasing VAT in duty, which it could cut, not only to reduce inflation but also to help its struggling citizens. Now the Bank of England is raising interest rates which won't reduce inflation but will hammer households struggling to pay their bills. This is yet another wealth transfer from the have nots to the have a lots. Government should ensure full employment, prevent inflation and protect our citizens. Incompetence, ideology and cruelty. Mean the UK has failed miserably, in all counts. Leah Gunn, Barrett, Edinburgh According to my old phone, barons are well up the laddered blue stockings of the aristocracy. Is it yet another lie from the lips of a ridiculous Tory leader to describe our trade union representatives as such? Hundreds out of millions of years have passed since the working classes grasped a slippery handhold from the ruling classes to earn a right to life by simply being human. The Brexit shambles has already shown that we are living in a land of too many cowboys and a shortage of Indians. High time for the herd to lead the pack. Duncan Graham, Sterling Give us a pensions guarantee. I received two pensions paid by United Kingdom bodies, one the state pension which is paid by the UK government, and the other paid under the auspices of the financial assistance scheme by the Pension Protection Fund, which was originally established in UK law by the Pensions Act 2004, essentially to manage and make pension compensation payments to those, such as me, whose main employer had become bankrupt and who would, otherwise, receive nothing from years of contributions made into their employer's final salary pension scheme, It has been made abundantly clear over the past few months that if Scotland were to gain independence from the UK, the UK government and, presumably also, UK bodies such as the Pension Protection Fund, which was established by UK law, would have no legal obligation to continue pension payments to citizens of a state which had become independent and was no longer part of the UK, a position which is perfectly logical, as national insurance payments paid over the years to the UK government paid to fund the pensions of those receiving them and not to fund the future pensions of those making the national insurance contributions? After all, I'm sure that if Scottish independence from the UK were gained, Scottish workers making NI contributions to the Scottish Exchequer wouldn't expect their contributions to go to fund the pensioners the pensions of pensioners resident in the foreign state comprising England, Wales and Northern Ireland. To allay the very natural fears of Scottish pensioners, especially given the disastrous state of Scotland's finances, it is not incumbent upon the Scottish government and upon Holyrood as a whole to provide a written and irrevocable cast-iron guarantee, preferably one enshrined in Scottish legislation, to current pensioners in Scotland that pensions currently paid by the UK government and other UK bodies would continue unaffected and on the same terms if Scotland were to become independent, and to also provide a foreign guarantee of similarly based future pension entitlement to all those Scottish citizens currently making NI contributions into the UK coffers, the latter guarantee, despite my own self-interest, being undeniably more important to the vast majority of the population than the former? Until, and unless, such an irrevocable guarantee is given, I, for one, know exactly which way I would vote in any Scottish independence referendum and would urge all Scottish voters, regardless of age, to think and act likewise, with their heads and not their hearts. Bob Hamilton, Motherwell. So why do do they want Scotland? Why are unionists so desperate to keep Scotland in the union if we are costing them so much? William Lunsky letters, June 21st. Suggest Scotland to lots of freebies as part of the UK. What would be the freebies paid for by the Scottish consumers through VAT and excise duty? VAT and excise duty from the transactions in Scotland go directly into the UK Exchequer. It receives 70% of the cost of a bottle of whisky. And what about the extra VAT the UK Exchequer is currently collecting from the astronomical fuel costs? We can't turn the clock back. But what about all the tax and revenues over the years from Scotland's oil? No oil fund created, no legacy for Scotland. Scotland's economy is taking a pounding as a result of something the people in Scotland did not want and did not vote for, Brexit. But hopefully, this can be connected with the powers of independence that must follow. Those powers will allow Scotland to have control of its own economy and allow it to prioritise spending to create the socially just society Scotland desires. Katrina C. Clarke Falkirk Like many relentless opponents of Scottish independence, William Lunsky letters, June 21st, seems to regard the Barnett formula as a total expression of the economic relationship between Scotland and England. On the contrary, there has never been an independent, comprehensive analysis of this relationship, and it is hard to imagine the necessary financial details being willingly released by the Treasury or the UK government. The head of the civil service once, perhaps inadvertently, summarised the official attitude as being economical with the truth. It is never clear whether the use of the Barnett formula to attack Scottish independence is due to a lack of understanding or to the deliberate misuse of numbers to support a prejudice. Peter Dryborough, Edinburgh s and and the tit- Titanic Syndrome it's a week since Nicola Sturgeon's confident statement that there will be a referendum by the end of next year. We all know a week is a long time in politics. Ian Blackford is in serious trouble. SNP's defence of Grady and Chaos as pressure mounts in Blackford. The Herald, June 21st. Angus Robertson, rushing to Mr Blackford's defence, has put himself in serious trouble too. Miss Sturgeon is dodging the issue along with Mr Blackford. Meantime, in the real world, the NHS crisis grows more serious with every passing day as well as social care, education and the economic fallout from numerous other problems. The net result is that the SNP-Green Alliance is slowly sinking over opposing policies and Ms Sturgeon's dream of independence has all but hit the rocks just after its launch. It is the Titanic syndrome. Nothing is unsinkable. Dr Gerald Edwards, Glasgow The brilliance of Stephen Camley I always turned to the letters page first for a look at the usual anti-SMP moans and today, June 21st, was depressingly with in and its volatility about the Barnett formula and other items. I could answer all the points and while cogitating the response scanned the other pages then stopped and laughed out loud at Stephen Camley's, Boris Johnson's nasal operation cartoon Depression gone, all is right in the world, and the Barnett formula can wait. Ken Mackay, Glasgow. And those were letters from the Herald Scotland letters page. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday, the 23rd of June 2022, from the news section, Global Hotel Giant Plan for Shopping Centre Lodged by Brian Donnelly. Planning application has been submitted for a new on-site Hampton by Hilton Hotel as part of the revamp of a 1980s shopping centre. The plans for the reimagination of Cameron Toll follows a public consultation exercise on a new master plan and future vision for what has been described as a community neighbourhood centre and includes 3D redesigns. The public consultation exercises, held from December to March, consulted the local community and key stakeholders on the future of Cameron Toll, with valuable feedback and comments received that have now led to the submission of this application, the developer said. Along with the new 159 Bed Hotel, which will operate as a Hampton by Hilton, significant improvements are planned on how Cameron Toll integrates with the surrounding area. By improving accessibility to the nearby Inch Park, and by promoting walking, cycling, and the use of public transport, it is hoped that Cameron Toll can further enhance these spaces whilst making the wider area easier and more attractive for pedestrians and cyclists to navigate. Originally opened in 1984 as Edinburgh's first out-of-town shopping centre, Cameron Toll has prided itself in continuously evolving to serve the local community for nearly 40 years. Claire Jeffcoat, Cameron Toll General Manager, said We are really excited to be submitting this planning application for what we believe will be a great new addition to Cameron Toll. Along with the hotel, the significant improvements to the wider public realm and access- accessibility will be of huge benefit to our customers and local residents. I would like to thank all those who took part in our public consultation exercise. The feedback we received has really helped us understand what Cameron Toll is to our customers and will help us as we continue to evolve and remain an important part of the local community. The business said, the plans have been drawn up to complement the existing retail, leisure and community offer and ensure Cameron Toll can continue to play a key role in South Edinburgh for many years to come. Central to the plans is the emerging 20-minute neighbourhood concept creating communities where daily services can be accessed within a 20-minute walk. Should the planning application be approved, it is anticipated that work would begin on site in 2023 with the hotel open and welcoming its first guests in early 2025. And that piece was by Brian Donnelly.
2: Recorded from the Herald on the 23rd of June, 2022, from the sports section, recorded by Amy. Rangers rubbish Sevilla, 8 million euro, Alfredo Morelos transfer Swips claim by David Irvin. Rangers have rubbish claims as an 8 million euro bid has been tabled for Alfredo Morelos. Reports from Spain claimed the La Liga side had submitted an official offer for the striker. Morelos has just one year remaining on his Ibrox deal, but as of yet, the Ibrox club say they have not received a bid from Sevilla. It is understood, even had an official bid had have been submitted, that it would have be, been rejected, with Ibrox chiefs believing the fee is wide of what they're looking for. The Ry- Rangers striker has never shied away from discussing a big-money move away from Ibrox, and he has revealed he would like to test himself in an elite European league. We told earlier this week, Hebesittas were also linked with a 26-year-old, with some reports suggesting the Turkish outfit were in talks with Rangers. Morelis was cruelly ruled out of a run-in last season after picking up a thigh injury. As a result, he missed both of the Europa and Scottish Cup finals. That article was by David Irvin. Recorded from the Herald on the 23rd of June 2022, from the sports section, recorded by Amy. Wonder Kid Zach Lovelace Set to Join Rangers After Informing Millwall of MOVE, by David Irvin. Teenage Wonder Kid Zach Lovelace is a reportedly set to join Rangers from Millwall. The 16-year-old attracted interest from over the summer after making his championship debut for Millwall, aged just 15, back in December last year. And now... It's claimed Rangers have won the race for his signature. Forward Lovelace has not yet penned professional teams, but it is thought, it is thought to be ready to make the move to Ibrox this summer. Transfer insider Fraser Fletcher reports Lovelace has informed Millwall of his decision to leave to sign for Giovanni Van Bronkar's side from July 1st. It comes after Premier League duo Brighton and Leicester City were reportedly in for the teenager following his impressive youth form with 21 goals in 19 games which earned him a first team spot. Millwall were also desperate to keep hold of talent Lovelace with boss Gary Rowett making his feelings clear before the offseason. However it's now expected Lovelace will leave the club with Rangers ready to hunt him an Ibrox deal. On Lovelace Rowett previously explained the club have made it clear that we would love Zach to be a part of what we do next year and on a full-time basis that's our aim there's inevitability unfortunately that some of your better young players get poached by other clubs to a certain degree those fees are a little bit out of your hands Zack is one of those a lad who has a bit of interest he'll be getting different advice and all we can do is show how much we want him here and then see what happens I don't think he's made a decision now I think someone would have to be interested and essentially pay compensation for him The article was by David Irvin, The Herald Scotland, Thursday, twenty third of June,
0: twenty twenty two. Voices, Sturgeon on HRT. Is that the Meno taboo smashed? By Vicky Allen, senior features writer. The First Ministers coming out last weekend as having experienced menopausal symptoms and now being on HRT was definitely a moment in the fight to break what Kirsty Wark once called the societal omerta around the menopause. Nicola Sturgeon talked at Flushfest Menopause Festival of wanting to burst the stigma and with this she clearly does. Hang on, is there an omerta? Seems like everyone is talking about the menopause these days. There have been quite a few of us making a noise in recent years, often in books, including my own collaboration with Kay Adams, Still Hot, and Kate Muir's excellent Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause, But we Too Afraid to Ask, as well as documentaries such as those presented by Davina McCall and even Menopause Cafes. But I'm not aware of another female political leader who has acknowledged their journey through this midlife hormonal change, which happens just around the age when women these days are often at the peak of their powers and leadership. Michelle Obama has, but she's not a political leader. And then there's Brigitte Nyborg in Borgen, going through hot flushes, but that's safely within the world of fiction. Sturgeon is breaking ground here. The noise is rising right now, Because the taboo has not entirely cracked. And if we're hearing a lot about the virtues of HRT, that's also because for many years the drugs were demonised. It's because even now it's still not possible, in parts of Scotland, to get key drugs. So, this outpouring is something we should embrace? Absolutely. A key problem for many women going through the menopause is that for a long while it was unspeakable. Ms. Sturgeon's statement is part of making it speakable, even at the top. But, at the same time, we have to watch for pitfalls. When the story becomes about Sturgeon being on HRT, rather than simply a menopausal woman in her power, it can become one that focuses solely on the menopause as a problem, to be medicated, and misses out the part of the revolution that's about creating a more positive view of older women and this transition. I absolutely want women to be able to easily access the HRT they need, but I want that revolution in attitudes too. The menopause can sometimes seem a no-win game for women. If we say we want to use HRT to help us, we are also announcing the brain fog, rage and anxiety that can come with it as a problem to be used against us. No wonder some women stay quiet. I mean, why even does the menopause even exist? Good question. All too prevalent these days is the idea that the menopause is just a byproduct of the fact that women would all have been dead by 50, a kind of dustbin period of our lives. Therefore, we should do whatever we can to prevent it happening, particularly given HRT has been linked to greater longevity. But the very existence of the menopause is more complex and debated than that with many hypotheses attached to it, including the grandmother hypothesis, which revolves around the evolutionary usefulness of grandmothers in child-rearing. Research also shows that in hunter-gatherer societies, women would have lived for some decades after menopause. As evolutionary biologists Rufus Johnson and Michael Kant have noted, among the Hadza hunter-gatherers of Tanzania, for example, 40% of newborn girls survived to 50 years, and those that treat this age can expect to live into their 70s. The ubiquity of menopause, despite vast differences in ecology and technology, suggests that it is an evolved feature of human reproductive physiology, not an artefact of modern living. What would you most like changed? That women struggling with menopause get the support they need, and that the post-fertile woman is no longer seen as redundant or a problem. Potentially, whether on HRT or not, she is, like the First Minister, in her prime. This article was written by Vicky Allen.
4: Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 23rd of June 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Theatre. Mrs Brown is back in the road with live show by Brian Beacom, Senior Features Writer. Back in the 70s and 80s, we couldn't get enough of fake breasts, Judy Plum wigs and support hose so thick that they could easily turn the fan belt on a tractor. Yes, we loved our comedians who loved to drag up and make us laugh. Dick Emery, Danny LaRue, Stanley Baxter, Lily Savage and then later the Little Britain duo emerged and we have always had our panto stars of course. Ironically in British society, homophobia was rife and those of our dragged up comics who happened to be gay kept their sexuality private. Scotland didn't make homosexuality legal until 1980. But the world has veered in a different direction. Drag can be simply a celebration of a man dressing up as a woman, as RuPaul's hugely successful drag race has proved. Drag is continually breaking boundaries, becoming a global phenomenon, and being adopted by mainstream society. And there's been an increase in live drag events across the UK, allowing for a blurring of the lines between masculinity and femininity. And now, thankfully, that world can sit comfortably alongside drag comedy. If there was a worry that the drag comics would come under criticism for making fun of the female form, that hasn't happened. Britain's biggest drag comedian is, of course, Brendan O'Carroll, the Dubliner who has taken his Mrs Brown creation across the English-speaking world and has conquered much of it. Of course, the likes of O'Carroll, Emery and Baxter aren't trying to convince his women. They each offer up caricatures, heightened versions, their comedy creations allowed to behave in heightened form. Baxter indeed based much of his characterization on his own mother, Bessie. I used the fact that she would have loved to have been a film star, he says. And when you have a film star living up a Glasgow close, it allows you to have all sorts of fun. O'Carroll also based his Mrs Brown creation on his own mother. She was a powerful, no-nonsense woman who got things done, he said of the former Taoiseach politician, and she kept her family together. The Irish comedian battled for 20 years to become successful before Mrs Brown was discovered at the Pavilion Theatre in Glasgow by a TV producer tipped off by Rab C Nisbet creator Ian Paterson. Since then Mrs Brown's boys has gone on to win 5 BAFTAs, 4 national television awards, 3 TV choice awards and take the twice bankrupt writer stroke performer's bank account into a multi-million pound celebration. Now Brendan O'Carroll's homage to his mother is back with Mrs Brown's Live show, The Tour. It's the funniest thing I've ever written, says O'Carroll, with characteristic modesty. Even I laugh, and I know what's coming next. The show's a mix of musical with eight songs and a storyline, of sorts, but judge for yourself, it's the funniest thing ever. Following on from his Mrs Brown's film storyline, Dublin's stout-hearted stallholders have won their court case against developers who wish to close Moore Street Market. But where to find the 75,000 euro legal costs? The matriarch of the fruit stall has a plum idea: Put on a musical and watch the dosh roll in. A sentiment the writer himself wholeheartedly agrees with. Mrs Brown's The Live Show Edinburgh Playhouse, July 15-17 The show must go on, right? No matter what happens, the performer has to push their worries aside and get their act together. Glasgow drag star Kevin Branigan has also created a huge comedy character in Big Angie. However, Brannigan's resolve is being tested to the limit these days. Having found himself signed up to star on the stage as part of the Merchant City Festival in Glasgow, no sooner was East Ender ready to announce details in his social media account than hackers broke in and captured his domain. And the result has left him higher than a eunuch, and drier than a freshly talcum bottom. I was hacked he reveals Losing not only 31,000 plus followers, but content from Big Angie's earliest days, tons and tons of feedback from people all over the world, and nostalgic memories and private messages I couldn't get back. Brannigan is certainly down, but not out. Spurred on from the success of his Beauty and the Beef comedy sketches he wrote for the BBC, he's determined to let the world know Big Angie won't lay down, unless a lot of super-lagger is involved. And his latest show, Big Angie, Me, the Polis and the Priest, has to be seen. It downloaded into my brain as I carried my messages across the street, he recalls. I saw also vividly. The title, the story, the beginning, the middle and the end and all the bits in between. Now in the process of rebuilding his social media page, he has to let people know it's on. That social media was my beating heart, but I'm determined to kickstart it once again, he says in a stoic voice. Kevin Brannigan, The Old Fruit Market, July 28th. Brian
1: The Herald Wednesday the 22nd of June 2022 News Boris Johnson refuses to deny trying to get girlfriend a job at foreign office This article is by Andrew Learmonth Boris Johnson has refused to deny trying to get his wife Carrie a £100,000 post at the foreign office in 2018 There have been calls for an investigation into the allegations. The claims were first made in a book by the Tory peer, Lord Ashcroft. More details emerged in the Times last week, although the paper withdrew the article following an intervention from Number 10. Mr Johnson was challenged at Prime Minister's questions over the issue. Labour MP Chris Elmore asked the Tory leader if he had ever considered the appointment of his current spouse to a government post or to any organisation in one of the royal households? Be honest, Prime Minister, yes or no? Mr Johnson swerved the question. I know why the party opposite wants to talk about non-existent jobs in the media, because they don't want to talk about what is going on in the real world. I'm proud to say actually that we now have 620,000 people more in payroll employment than before the pandemic began, which would never have been possible if we had listened to the right honourable gentleman opposite, Sir Keir Starmer. According to the initial report in the Times on Saturday, Mr Johnson attempted to hire Carrie, who was his girlfriend at the time, as his Chief of Staff. At the Foreign Office. Subsequent reports allege he spoke with aides about getting the now Mrs Johnson jobs after taking over at number 10. The Daily Mirror said the Prime Minister asked about potential roles at the COP26 summit or with the Royal Family. Asked about the claims Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab told Sky News these attacks on Carrie are deeply unsavoury. The allegations that have been made have been roundly responded to as flawed. Those are matters for Number 10 and for Kerry to answer. The SNP has written to the UK Cabinet Secretary demanding an investigation. The party's Cabinet Office spokesperson, Brendan O'Hara, said Given the stench of cronyism surrounding the Tories at Westminster, and the multiple occasions in which Boris Johnson has lied, cheated, willfully broken the law and offered senior roles to close allies and friends, it is incumbent on the Cabinet Secretary to take this latest allegation seriously. Labour MP Chris Bryant said it would have been manifestly corrupt for Ms Johnson to have been given a job at the Foreign Office while Mr Johnson was Foreign Secretary. This article is by Andrew Learmonth
3: from the Herald Scotland, Friday the twenty fourth of June, twenty twenty two, from the sports section. Josh Kerr only interested in the pursuit of gold as he prepares for fifteen hundred metres title at British Championships, by Susan eaglestaff Josh Kerr has always been one to look at the bigger picture. Last year's British 1500m title it was just a stepping stone to much bigger things later that season. And last summer's Olympic bronze medal it was, he hopes, just a stepping stone to something historic this year. At the Olympics, I was very proud of my bronze because the two people who beat me were arguably better than me especially on the day, he says. It was a big PB for me But I'm trying to win every race I'm in, so it's about taking a deep breath and saying it wasn't quite good enough, so how do I get better? I want to be the very best, and I'm not quite there yet, so it's exciting to think of future races because now, I don't really care about getting just any medal, now I want gold. I'm not looking to rack up bronzes or silver, I want golds now. The major championships gold medal care is imagining around his neck is that of the world championships, which will begin in Eugene in just a few weeks' time. But first, Kerr must ensure he has a seat on the plane. The British Championships begin today in Manchester, and while Kerr is odds-on favourite to defend the title he won last year, he is too experienced to allow any complacency to set in. The men's 1500 metres has been one of Britain's strongest events in recent years, and making the GB team is likely to be harder than making the World Championship final. Running for Kerr will be his compatriots, Jake Whiteman and Neil Gurley, as well as the English contingent of Jack Hayward, Piers Copeland and Charlie Grice. Kerr has never been one to have a particularly heavy racing schedule. He has only raced three times outdoors so far this season, but he is confident of his form, particularly indoors where where he set a new European mile record. It's been a good start to the year, and I think we're really building towards something special at the major championships," the 24-year-old from Edinburgh says. But first things first, defending my British title, and that's really important to me, so I'm going to make sure that happens, and then I can look forward to the Worlds. Since crossing the line 3rd in Tokyo, Kerr has been formulating a plan about what he needs to change in order to upgrade that Olympic bronze medal. Winning World Gold this summer would be no mean feat. He would need to be Olympic champion and one of the best ever in the event. Jakob Ingebrigtsen, no less. But Kerr believes there is certainly scope to race differently and potentially get a different result in Eugene. I don't think I need to change much fitness-wise. I think I just need to risk more when I'm racing and run for gold or bust sometimes, he says. It's a scary thought. Jake Whiteman did it last year in Tokyo, really went for it and it could have been a situation when he made as well but it didn't quite work out the way he wanted. But there's definitely a level of risk within the 1500 meters where you can choose to go early. I chose to sit back a bit but maybe I need to risk going more and go earlier. It's more the third and fourth lap is where I push harder than most people. So if I'd gone earlier it might have been a different result. But how do you much do you play with it? I can run it in any way and I'm going to run the world championships, trying to win it. I've always gone into every race wanting to win it, and now it's just more of a reality. It's split decisions in the final. No two races are the same, and you just need to use your experience. Kerr has also had to get used to having much more of a spotlight upon him since his return from Tokyo, something he has previously avoided due to being based in America. He caused something of an uproar in a recent interview, when he said he didn't want fame, and didn't want to be in the sight of any yogurt pots, referring, it seemed, to promotions some of his fellow GB athletes have done, alongside one of the major sponsors of the sport in this country. He was, he insists, entirely misrepresented and misunderstood, but the point remains that, for now at least, Fame and Fortune are well down Cares list of priorities. It's interesting how it's changed, he says. When you're doing a few interviews each week, it's easy to rile people up and say the wrong thing. That yogurt thing, it didn't come across the way I meant it. It was difficult because I'd never been under that kind of scrutiny before and had people implying things about what I'd said. I'm a pretty authentic person and so if you want to disagree with what I've said, that's fine. I'm just a runner. I don't want to be misunderstood that I don't want to do media or things like that. But at this point in my career, I'm focused on being the best runner I can be. It's about priorities. I'm not at the point where I'm a world or Olympic champion. There's still a way to go before that happens. And so when it does, then I can relax a bit and enjoy everything that comes with it. The media attention and the fame that come being being one of the very best runners in the world. I make sacrifices on a daily basis to become the best runner I can. Doing extra media and getting extra money from sponsors isn't helping me become a better runner. And so I'm focused on becoming world champion and then I'll enjoy the fruits of my labour after that. And that article is by Susan Egglestaff.
4: Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 24th of June 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Books, from fantastical children's books to heart-rending memoirs, take a look at what's new this week, by Herald Magazine. Fiction, Vladimir, Julia May Jonas, Picador £14.99, ebook £12.99. Vladimir is an interesting take on the hashtag MeToo movement, told not from the perspective of the survivor or victim, but from someone else, Our narrator is an English professor at a small college in New England who, despite having an open relationship and knowing about the affairs, is grappling with her husband coming under investigation for historic relationships with students. Things become even more complicated when a new young professor joins the college, and the unnamed narrator becomes increasingly obsessed with him. While the book initially feels edgy and nuanced, by the end it veers into melodrama, which somewhat takes away from the realism, and it ultimately feels like Jonas hasn't quite decided what she wants the book's message to be. Well, it's an interesting, readable and prescient take on issues society's still dealing with, it perhaps could have done with a lighter touch and a clearer vision. 7 out of 10 Ungrateful Angela Chadwick Dialogue Books £18.99 E-Book £7.99 Ungrateful tells the story of Cat, a woman who missed out in university as a teenager and now in a relationship that is comfortable but unfulfilling. Finds herself trying to make up for lost time. This is a book that tries to be many things, a tale of second chances, relationships and a social commentary. At times it feels bogged down in unnecessary detail. Cat is a complicated, flawed and interesting protagonist, but some of the secondary characters could do with further exploration. While the reader feels for the plight of some, such as Kat's alcoholic mother Bernice and her colleague Laura, there is a sense of wanting to know more about their backstories. The novel is readable, but unlikely to stay in the reader's mind after it is finished. 6 out of 10 The Men Sandra Newman Granta Books £14.99 Ebook 14 £14.99 Feminist science fiction has long been gripped by the concept of a utopian society without men. Sandra Newman's latest novel, The Men, explores just that, when all of the men suddenly and inexplicably vanish from the face of the earth, a new society emerges and is unnervingly enthralled by an evolving series of video clips that show the men acting peculiarly in a strange alternate world. Focused in the harrowing intertwining past and present of Jane Pearson and Evangeline Moreau, Newman ambitiously delves into disturbing themes of racism, sexual assault, police violence and coercive control yet her wonderful prose is let down by a meandering narrative that seems lost in its own confusion. Jane and Evangeline aren't especially likeable, and the purported feminist utopia is thwarted by female violence against trans men and a morally questionable emerging political entity. Add to that a mind-bending conclusion, and you're left wondering whether you should feel offended, terrified, or beguiled. 5 out of 10 Non-fiction Black Sheep, a Story of Rural Racism, Identity and Hope. Sabrina Pace Humphreys, Quersus. £16.99. Ebook £9.99. From growing up feeling out of place in a small town to becoming pregnant as a teen, battling bigots and running ultra marathons, Sabrina Pace Humphreys' anti racist manifesto is deeply personal. A blend of storytelling and direction, Pace Humphreys shares the darkest lows of her life and the incredible ambition she had to push through them, overcoming her circumstances in a world that tried to marginalise her, while also clearing the way for other black women along the way. This is a brilliant exploration of what it means to be mixed race in Britain and how her trauma shapes us. Although sometimes overcrowded and often too fast-paced, it's an excellent non-fiction debut. 8 out of 10. Children's Book of the Week, Escape to the River Sea, Emma Carroll, Macmillan Children's Books £12.99, e 7 £7.49. Escaping the Nazis before the Second World War was never going to be enough adventure for Rosa Sweetman. Living in an English stately home with a group of other evacuees, she craves fresh excitement and she gets rather more than she bargained for when she comes across the Nazis again, this time in the South American jungle. Escape to the River Sea weaves together the hopes and fears of a young girl, giving a fascinating insight into the life of the indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest and the deadly world of international espionage. It takes the reader on a colourful and thrill-packed journey as Rosa and her young friends battle to thwart the bad guys. The book pays fitting homage to the late Eva Ibbotson, whose own work and life inspired this story. 8 out of 10 by Herald Magazine. Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 24th of June 2022, Arts and Entertainments. James Slay, evocative Scots words convey as such meaning as half a dozen in English, by Agenda. Despite Dr Johnson's observation that the best place to witness human vanity is a public library, I was fair chuffed when I had my first novel published after decades of scribbling, until I happened to recall Burns's lines. We are no foo, we are nae that foo, but just a drappy in the e, In just two lines, as he zeroes in in the glistening eye, he deftly captures the essence of a drunk and puts my 180,000 word opus into perspective. Writing in Scots came easily to Burns. It was the everyday tongue of the majority of the folk around him. And even though he had perfect command of English, Scots was, brackets, thank goodness, close brackets, the vehicle he deliberately chose to express himself in his writing. There is something wonderfully evocative and colourful in written and spoken Scots. Doesn't the image of a druc at reveal the pathos and misery of the wee bird far better than the English a wet sparrow? And drich. I believe that to capture the essence of what that word conveys would take half a dozen in English. The list is almost endless. I was mystified in my first visit to Aberdeenshire when I heard Doric. It is as much more than an accent with a few strange words thrown in. I drove up from Glasgow with a pal, and outside Aberdeen we got lost in a country road, and drew up alongside a firmer cheel, leaning on a dyke, puffing contentedly in his cutty pipe. I asked him if we were on the right road. Aye, gin ye gin, doon pass the hussy yonder, and then wee bitty after passing the kirk, you'll see a field a hint o wooden yet, wi some coos and a cuddy and Take the yin to the left, while there's hearse hoff in. I thanked him and we drove off. What the hell was that? asked my pal. He looked puzzled. I think he was a Dutchman. Adding to the challenge of writing in Scots is a great range of spelling, and there's sometimes quite a variation in meaning. My mother used worse to mean extremely sour, while according to the dictionary, in some areas of Scotland it means insipid. Even if defining the value is elusive, to my mind Scots is value. I've no doubt that the more we lose it, the more we lose part of our character, our humour, our national identity. Can you imagine what would have been lost if Lex McLean had delivered his lines in standard English? I still laugh at his opening lines. One night at the Pavilion Theatre, was it last next we a woman we heard or down her back, nane on her heat, just down her back. Of course, that raises is the question: Do we consider Lex was a Scots speaker, or was he using a kind of English with an accent? The distinction is surely a fine one. Having lived in North America, many Americans find almost everything associated with Scotland, including Scots language, quaint and intriguing. But just as the pronunciation of loch eludes many Englishmen, the vocabulary of Scots is a charming head-scratcher to most North Americans. I didn't consciously plan to use Scots in my novel, but the protagonists, Gurdley and McMinn, almost begged me to let them at least sprinkle their speech with Scots. I went along with that notion and have no regrets, but it took me so long to complete I consoled myself with the old Scots saw, "Nothing should be done in haste, but the gruppin' of fleas. A parcel of rogues by James Slay is published by Livingston Press, University of West Alabama. By Agenda.
3: From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 27th of June 2022, from the Sports Etchion, Celtic pre-season schedule confirmed as further match in Austria is announced by Ewan Peyton. Celtic's pre-season schedule has now been finalised. It has been confirmed that Ange Postecoglou's side will play SC Wiener-Victoria, July 6 next week. The match will be played as part of the Hoops pre-season training camp in Austria. Games against Rapid Vienna on July 9th and Bani Kostrava on July 13th has already been penciled in. The club will then return to Glasgow before hosting Blackburn Rovers on July 16. A trip to Poland is then on the cars to participate in a tribute match to Arthur Boric against Legia Warsaw. The final pre-season encounter for Celtic comes at Parkhead against Norwich City on July 23rd with the league campaign commencing one le- week later. And that article is by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland Monday the 27th of June 2022 from the sports section Ross County boss Malky Mackay praises new signing Owura Edwards by Ewan Payton Malky Mackay says Ross County's pre-season camp set up in Italy it's the perfect setting to get some hard work done. The Highlanders are in Verona for the week as the players are pur- put through their paces with some warm weather training. The premiership doesn't start for well over an- another four weeks, however, the Premier Sports Cup campaign commences in a little under two. Mackay was speaking to County's official social media outlets. He said It's been tough for the guys so far. The weather is very hot, but we knew that. We've trained early in the morning and then later in the afternoon to compensate. We've got great pitches, and we've got a pool on site which is great for the lads to jump straight in after the sessions. They're getting plenty of good food as well. It's been terrific. Having the pitches on site is ideal, it's very private. The groundsman has been with us every morning to make sure the grass is cut properly and watered, which is important with the heat we're in at the moment. It works really well that we're not having to be bussed to a certain area. It means we can get a little more done here. New boy O'Wara Edwards joined the Staggies at the weekend and has already joined up with his new teammates in Italy. McKay expressed his happiness at getting a deal over the line for the attacker. He said, I'm delighted to get him. We've tracked him for a period of time. He's a young player who's come through Bristol City's academy. We we now look at someone who's played 50 league games in England over two or three loan moves as well. He's someone who has dipped his toe into English League football and comes up here to throw his hat in to come and play. And that article is by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 27th of June 2022. From the sports section, Wolves keep hearts and Aberdeen waiting over Conor Ronan transfer. By Ewan Payton. Wolves are making hearts and Aberdeen wait over their transfer pursuit of Conor Ronan, according to a report. The Premier League side are said to be willing to let the 24-year-old go this summer. However, it's also believed that before they let the attacking midfielder move on, boss Bruno Lage wants to take a look at the Republic of Ireland player during pre-season. Both Hearts and Aberdeen are keen to sign the Irishman ahead of the new season after he impressed on loan with St Mirren last term. As a result of Lage wanting to take a closer look at Ronan though, the Daily Record say that the Premiership duo will be forced to be patient in their approach. It remains to be seen whether Ronan would be allowed to leave in a permanent deal or whether another loan move could be on the cards. And that article was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 27th of June 2022 from the Voices section Issue of the Day The End of the Road for Paper £20 and £50 Notes By Maureen Sugden Paper money dates back through the centuries, but it's been phased out now, with paper £50 and £20 notes losing their legal tender status in a matter of months. Do you have any lying around? How long till they are withdrawn? After September 30th, paper £20 and £50 notes will no longer be legal tender. The Bank of England has announced, calling on anyone with any of these notes remaining in their possession, to use them between now and then, or deposit them at their bank. Or a post office during these last days. They have been replaced. The majority of paper f- 20 pounds and 50 pound banknotes in circulation have been replaced with new polymer versions but it is estimated that there are still more than six billion pounds worth of paper 20 pound notes featuring the most famous Scottish economist Adam Smath and more than eight billion pounds worth of paper 50s featuring the English engineer Matthew Bolton and Scots engineer James Watt, in circulation. That's more than 300 million individual £20 banknotes and 160 million paper £50 banknotes. In Scotland, Bank of Scotland, Clydesdale Bank and the Royal Bank of Scotland will also take paper versions of their £20 and £50 banknotes out of circulation after September 30th, with polymer taking over. The Committee of Scottish Bankers said, all the Scottish banks will begin to withdraw paper notes from circulation as the polymer notes are issued. These notes will continue to be honoured. However, if you have any of these notes, you should take this to your branch or bank bank for credit to your account. It's a worldwide trend. Australia became the first country to make the change fully in the 1990s. The US dollar, though, is printed in a linen and cloth blend with red and blue fibres distributed randomly to deter counterfeiting. Why the change? in part to make them more difficult to counterfeit, as well as more durable. But the Bank of England's chief cashier, Sarah John, said, It's a significant number to been in the economy, so we're asking you to check if you have any at home. Paper notes are ancient. The first recorded use of paper money dates to the 17th century in China, although it was not until the 16th century that their use became more common in Europe. In Britain, banknotes were originally handwritten, and although they were partially printed from the early 18th century onwards, cashiers still had to sign each note and make them payable to someone. Notes were fully printed from 1855 and have featured portraits of the British historical figures from the 1970s. It comes as... Cash payments are likely to fall to just 10% of all UK transactions within the next 15 years, according to a recent study funded by Link. Access to cash with cards and digital transactions proving quicker and more convenient for many. many. However, there are concerns about the impact on more vulnerable groups. H. Scotland point out, while more and more old people are embracing technology, those who still rely on cash are more likely to be older, poorer and more vulnerable. And that was a report by Maureen Sugden from the Herald Scotland. Tuesday the 28th of June 2022 in the Voices section, Brian Wilson, there should be no hiding place for the Danish chairman of CalMac. It was a routine weekend on Calmark services, not that that is their fault. On Friday, Aram was in familiar disarray as an oil leak put the MV Caledonian Isles out of action. Between North Uist and Harris, there was a week of cancellations and diversions after MV Lot Porton suffered propulsion failure. By yesterday, the engineers were heading south to Isle. Due to a technical issue with the MV Hibadien Isles port main engine, which requires further investigation, the Calmac website announced, the rest of the day's sailings were cancelled. I do not claim this list is comprehensive. Keeping up with Calmac disruptions would require a daily dispatch, like the weather forecast or court circular. It's peak season and I guessed about 2,000 booked vehicles Caught up in just the episodes I have mentioned. A distinguishing point of these three breakdowns is that each affected a vessel between 20 and 38 years old. That should be just about as big a story as a Ferguson scandal because it guarantees the continuing deterioration of services to Scotland's west coast islands. Essentially, the fleet is knackered. This reminded me of an important story by Martin Williams in The Herald just over a year ago, which revealed the Scottish government had quietly raised the depreciation period of Scotland's ferries from 20 to 35 years. The move was described by John Whittle, who ran Calmac in days when it was master of its own house, as a simple ruse to justify delaying expenditure on replacement vessels. Just as revealing was a quote from Seamal, the Scottish Government's vessel procurement quangle, Mr. Whittle, they said loftily, clearly misunderstands the robust arrangements that are in place. The suggestion that the lifespan of vessels has been altered in line with the level of available investment is nonsense. Seymour continued, Vessels can operate effectively for between 30 and 40 years and do so in many parts of the world. If a vessel is properly serviced and maintained, there is no reason why it cannot operate efficiently and safely for 40 years. Well, tell that to the business owners, tourists and islanders who are now, week in week out, at the sharp end of evidence to the direct contrary. What robust arrangements? That takes me to the SNP's favourite prince of Denmark, Eric Ostergaard. Throughout the evolving Ferguson scandal, Ostergaard was the chairman of Seamall. Don't ask me why, in a land of seafarers, this role fell to a Danish bureaucrat. That question should be addressed to his patrons in Edinburgh. Mr Ostergard has been described to me by, by someone with a close-up view as the man who put a noose around Calmac's neck. The female board, having privately told Derek McCallion and his superiors that the doomed contract should not go to Ferguson's, Ostergard stayed in post when that advice was brushed aside for political reasons and remained utterly silent for five years. The Seemaal board has been equally complicit in telling ministers and civil servants what they wanted to hear by pretending clapped-out ferries actually have a life expectancy of 35 or 40 years, thereby rationalising the case for not maintaining a replacement programme. Not one noose, but two. So, what did Ostergard get out of this, other than hanging on the ro- hanging onto the Seemaal rule? Incredibly, late last year he was announced as chairman of David McBrain Limited, parent company of Calmac through a process which reflected everything rotten about Scotland's public appointment system, built around a magic circle who flipped from one Quango to the next, conditional only on not rocking any ministerial boat. Via this process, the Quango man who should be held directly accountable for the plight in which Caledonia McBrain and the communities that depend on it find themselves is now in charge of Caledonia McBrain this was breathtaking in its effrontery, while Ustergaard remains entirely unknown in the islands over which he holds sway. The panel which gave him the McBrain job was chaired by Francis Pachetti, the senior civil servant to whom he had answered throughout his Seamal Islands, and was actually the one who replied to him rejecting the Seamal board warning in 2015. The independent panel member was Andrew Thin, another multi clan within Mr Patricio's remit, while the trio was completed by an ethics advisor from the Commissioner of Public Appointments, whose job it is to apparently see and hear no evil. The past six months have been among the most difficult in Kalmarc's history. Not a week has passed without another significant breakdown of an ageing vessel, with untold cumulative consequences for fragile island economies. Yet, where has the chairman of Kalmak been when he should have been facing the public to defend the reputation of his company and his employees? The answer is, in Copenhagen, where he lives and works. Now that Ostergaard has been in a role for six months, I ask Kalmak for a list of A. Ports and B. Vessels which he has visited. Answers are awaited and if they ever come, my guess be is they will be zero and zero. I also ask which local authorities in Calmark Territory he has met. Another zero. On Thursday, Ostergaard is due to appear before Holyrood's Public Audit Committee, which is investigating the origins of the Ferguson contract. In response to the Auditor General's damning report, it is, as far as I can trace, the first occasion on which a relative Dane has been held publicly accountable in his career as a Scottish quangoteer. Though the inquiry scope may not extend to how he ended up leading an organisation he put a noose around. His patience to answer that question and many more should be demanded by island MSPs worth their salt. And the audience should be in public halls from Broderick to Stornoway. Mr Ostegaard has been allowed to hide for far too long and if he will not face the test of public accountability he should stand down and make way for someone who cares about the damage done rather than having the strongest possible vested interest in covering the backs of those responsible, his own included. And that was an opinion piece by Brian Wilson. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 28th of June, 2022. From the Voices section, Catriona Stewart, Running club has changed my whole attitude to health. Ladies might glow, but let me tell you, I clearly ain't no lady. I'm sweaty, soaked, sodden, saturated. What a feeling. Despite best efforts, lockdown had made everything more sedentary. No matter how enthusiastic or encouraging an online gym teacher, you just can't work up the same energy in your living room as you can in a gym. I kept up my ballet classes during the pandemic's first two years but Yeti, while trying to avoid knocking over a pot plant, simply can't compete to one executed on a sprung floor in a dance studio. From cycling back and forth to the office every day, I went to walking four paces from my desk to my fridge. Parkrun was canceled and, while running is one of these great things you can do at any time of the day anywhere, I am what you might politely call extremely lazy. I would often lace up my trainers with the best of intentions and then jog as far as the nearest coffee shop. Coffee, of course, means cake, so running rapidly developed a negative effect. I downloaded the Couch 25k app, again. I completed it, again. I vowed, again, to keep running, and I did not. But then my friend John Paul intervened with what is possibly the most transformative thing anyone has ever done for me. He signed me up to his running club, Glasgow Front Runners. It turns out you do, truly, get by with a little help from your friends. And that lazy madams benefit from accountability. Once I'd committed to showing up to running club three times a week, I had to go, and having company on runs made all the difference. I have a weird relationship with running, and if I know fine well that if I keep going I will start to enjoy it. For the first mile or so, I hate it. I hate every step, I'm bored, the end is too far away, I want to quit and on my own always do. Not surrounded by other runners though, especially not the ones in my extremely supportive and wildly encouraging running club. So I made it through the couch to 5k training programme again, sweating merrily and even keeping pace with some of the more experienced runners. We had a graduation ceremony at which I cried because I am a soft touch and then, the next logical step was the 10k. A 10k? I don't know myself anymore. But still I signed up for the Loch Lomond 10k. It wasn't my first. I'd calculate my first and only 10k to be roughly 17 years ago, where it had the benefit of both the arrogance and the energy of youth. A colleague had mentioned she was looking for a running buddy to keep her company during a 10k. Having never run even the length of myself, I signed right up then and then and thought little more about it. I mentioned it to my then boyfriend's mother and sister, They looked aghast. His mother asked me when the race was. Six weeks away, I said. You'll never do it, she replied, repeating herself to make sure I got the message. I did not get the message. Training was a few board laps around Jumpelea Country Park. Inexplicably, I ran that race in six, 63 minutes. I was so green I didn't even have proper trainers, just a pair of fancy gutties. This time I had proper trainers and proper training, but a much older body with all its associated creaks and groans. I can see, finally, why people enjoy taking part in organised races. Everyone huddled at the start line, waiting for the off, generates such a feeling of anticipation. Anticipation and also an incredible attack of nerves. I had missed most of the 10k training programme thanks to a series of extravagant holidays. What if I couldn't make it all the way around? I'm trying to think now of a rational reason for my nerves, but I can't. I think the worst of it was worrying that it would be really impossibly hard. My club buddy gave me an encouraging pep talk. The sun came out. Everyone surged forward, and suddenly it was fine. We were off. I was instantly bored, bored but determined. It's quite meditative, the running. One night at training, I had been overcome by some weird burst of energy and shot off in a sprint. One of the fast lads has paced alongside me to keep me going, telling me just to concentrate on my feet and my arms and my legs and my feet and my arms repeatedly. It's soothing in an otherwise baffling world just to focus on your own body and its rhythm. That's why I love ballet classes. You know exactly what's coming next. There's a structure to the thing. Running provides a similar meditation Or it did, until about 75 k, when my hips seized up. I'd had a birthday a few days before the race race and, let me tell you, there's nothing to add to the terror of your vanishing 30s like a sudden onset hip pain. For quite a section of the race I wanted to give up. My hips would not move and I was shuffling. I could see the finish line and still I did not think I would make it. The pain was otherworldly. I kept going though. I pulled out the sprint finish, I thought I might vomit, I made it, one hour and two minutes of running with the sweat pouring off, on the last little length I was kept going by the thought that I would never have to do this again, just over the finish line and I thought when can I do this again? And that was a Voices piece by Catriona Stewart, from the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 28th of June 2022, from the Voices section, Neil Mackay can the West turn back from this collision course with disaster? By Neil Mackay, writing at large. War, children. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. That old number "Gimme shelter from the Rolling Stones has been going round and round in my head these last few days. The soundtrack to my thoughts about what the future holds, not just for folk in this strange part of the world, the West, where, like you and I, live by accident of birth, but for all it's all, as for humanity as a species. An old order isn't crumbling, it's crumbled. Across the West, we're in a state of undeclared civil war with each other, separated by identity and belief, with no collective values to hold us to the centre anymore. The end of Roe v Wade in America is the latest peak we've reached, though it's madness to imagine there's not another mountain range of conflict still before us. In the West, we become a people who hate each other. who want to strip the identity or the rights from those who somehow decided are our enemies, even though they're our neighbours or family. Everything in Western political life is about the destruction of the other. Smash abortion. Smash Brexit. Smash Europe. Smash Britain. Smash Scotland. Smash the woke. Smash boomers. Smash equality. Smash the right. Smash the left. Smash the centre. Smash everything that's not us, which demand ruthless tribalism and no quarter. Democracies are falling. Hungary is gone. Poland might go. Maybe France will sink soon, embracing the far right. The glow that held Britain together is undone. We can no longer see we're a strong democracy. Then there's America. There's now talk, that only the foolish would think foolish, of America descending into civil war of red states and blue states living lives so separate that America's union no longer holds. Wasn't that what the American Civil War was about? About human rights at their most basic? The federal government moving in one direction, while slave states moved in the other? Isn't that what's happening now? How can America not split? America is the greatest force in the Western world, when it breathes out our mother's steams. The shudder from American culture wars already runs through Britain. Soon there will be voices raised here at home and across the rest of the West, saying strip rights away. America leads after all. We are at war with each other so much in the West that we now target the rights of our fellow citizens. The British government eyes the Human Rights Act. Rape, murder, it's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. Violence is everywhere. Even in Europe, we're becoming used to political assassination and mass killing. We've seen two MPs murdered. Just this weekend, a gunman in Norway singled at a gay nightclub for atrocity. I cannot help but fear for my children, both young women. I may fear slightly less if I had sons, but still I'd fear nonetheless. I remember my grandmother telling me how throughout the 1930s, anyone with a brain in their head knew something was coming, something dreadful. The signs were everywhere, the depression, Spain, Manchuria, omens of a coming whirlwind across Europe and beyond. What if America goes? What if its democracy dies? Where will we stand in the world then? Picture a far-right candidate in the White House in 2024 as war in Ukraine rages on. What would Russia do then? Europe will be a cold, lonely place. Hunger is coming to the world. In ways that many may even think of the African famines of the 1980s seem tame. Russia blockades Ukraine, the breadbasket of the planet. Where will war and revolution break out in the developing world if people cannot eat? All the while, the giant China watches. America teeters, Europe cowers, Russia rages like a dying madman. Beijing just needs to wait and let us all destroy each other. We're already in the foothills of the Chinese century. Our self-hatred and division is the propellant for Chinese dominance. Decadence is a strange word, but there's a sense of decadence in the West, of dancing and partying at the edge of the grave. We're drugged to the eyeballs on screens. We step over our homeless in the streets. We don't care anymore what kind of immoral liars lead us today. Yet we all know this. We're not bad, us ordinary people. We've not turned the world this way. But we're weak. We've permitted what's happening to happen. A storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, I'm going to fade away. How do we end on hope? We need to re- renew our are done. And horror will be waiting for us somewhere. More violence? Violence on my streets or yours. War? An assault on my rights, or yours, or on my daughter's rights, on your son's lives? Maybe not this decade, but certainly, it's hard for a man of my years, now past 50, to imagine that the future holds much promise or peace. Unless... What is the gate unless? What is the historical lever to pull to change the future? It must be renewal, but how to renew the West? How can one man writing in a Scottish newspaper in the summer of 2022, as the world seemed to bend on its axis, have that answer? The question demands the thoughts and words of a billion minds, but we must renew. We must find a way to live together, to breathe fresh life into our democracies, to respect our differences. Most of all, we cannot wish to control the lives of others, for isn't that the curse now upon us, the desire to control each other? Or rather the desire by our leaders to twist and shape us in their image until we wish to control one another. Until I want to control control how you live your life and you want to control how I live mine. Maybe the answer is as simple as rediscovering a little empathy for each other rather than accepting the distance that politicians demand we put between us. I tell you love, sister. It's just a kiss away. It's just a kiss away. Go listen to the song. And that was a Voices piece by Neil Mackay. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald.
0: And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes, with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.